Thanks so much for the prayer, brother. Let's turn to the Word. Remember how we were discussing the idea of encouragement, adrenaline for the soul, and we talked about how adrenaline, like in the case of the British Downton Abbey, shouldn't be an exotic delicacy, but encouragement, which is like adrenaline, should be on tap daily in the standard family. So we address the issue of encouragement in marriage, and now I want to address the theme of encouragement in parenting. It says in Proverbs 15.4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life. But perversion in it crushes the spirit. There's a book written by John Abbott called The Mother at Home. Anybody read it? It's really good. One quote. Nothing can more discourage a child than a spirit of incessant fault-finding on the part of its parent. Think how the Lord has given to parents an almost disturbing dictatorial rule over their children. The fifth commandment reads, honor your father and your mother. So this gives parents a sway over their little ones like like none other, because God solemnly obligates children to honor their parents. Now the word honor in the Hebrew is the word kaved, which fundamentally means take as heavy. If I would have, say, uh, Owen come up here and I tossed a feather to Owen, wouldn't budge him. But if I tossed a 40-pound sandbag at Owen, it would push him back. And that's the point. Our words as parents are to be honored, are to be taken heavy by our children so that it budges them, so that it moves them. They're not to treat our words like lightweight feathers, but as heavyweight sandbags. So children are to allow their parents to have their words move them, direct them, influence them, impact them. So This makes the honoring child vulnerable to the honorable parents careful. We need to be careful as parents to select words that are true and not false. We need to have words that are kind and not cruel. Words that are life-giving, not soul-crushing. So we as parents should strive to encourage that make sense? So that's what we want to work with in, in three categories. We'll deal first with fathering, then with mothering, then with grandparenting. Three categories this hour, and we're done. So come on firstly with me to fathering. Fathering. You ever heard Dr. James Dobson, Southern California? Dobson reminisces about the imperfections of his dad. He says, I remember working with him one day in the backyard when I was 15 years old on a day when he was particularly irritable for some reason. He just crabbed at me for everything I did, even when I hustled. And finally, he yelled at me for something that that I considered petty, 
And I just threw down my rake and I quit. I just walked off. And I walked across our property, down the street, while my dad demanded that I come back. It was one of the few times in my life that I ever took on my dad like that. Well, I meandered around town for a while, wondering what would happen to me when I finally went home. And I ended up at my cousin's house on the other side of town. And after several hours there, with my knees quaking, I I called home. And my dad said, stay there, I'm coming over. And to say that I was nervous would be a great understatement. And in a short time, Dad arrived, and he asked to see me alone. And Bo, he said to me, I didn't like the way that I treated you this afternoon. I was riding your back for no good reason, and I just want you to know, Bo, I'm sorry. And your mom and I want you to come home now. And Dobson says this, It was a difficult moment for my dad, but he made a friend for life that day. Now, I wish that I could say that critical, crabby irritability never stained my fatherhood, but that wouldn't be true because it did. In fact, it's a besetting fault for not a few dads to be hypercritical. That was me. Kevin and I were talking in between and I, I knew really well I was good at crabbing and criticizing my children. But the keynote for fathers shouldn't be that of critical irritability. Instead, I think it should be encouraging harmony. Think of the first recorded words between our begetting Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, when he was there in the River Jordan. Remember, there were words that were spoken at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, words that are full of significance and instruction. It says there in Matthew three sixteen and following, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And there's one commentator who writes this. He says, There's a world of information about fatherhood in these two brief verses. First, when Jesus was baptized, his father was there, which is huge. Second, He made his presence felt by sending his spirit to descend like a dove in order to rest upon Jesus. Third, he made his presence known by speaking. And and so what did he say? He said, this is my son. And then fourth, he expressed his love for his son. This is my beloved son. And last, he expressed his pleasure in his son. So, so the first thing we're told about the relationship of a father to the son is that the father thought his son was doing a great job. Well done. That was the voice. In fact, here, dads, here is kind of the tuning fork pitch of fatherhood. Kevin, you're, you're a piano player. You, you know that a piano tuner tunes the steel strings by a standard of perfect pitch. And so, in many ways, this passage is a standard by which earthly fathers should tune the strings of their relationship with their children. 
this is what ideal fatherhood sounds like. Just listen to the sweet harmony of the relationship that's here. It's between the father and the son. This is the keynote, we could say, is, what would you say? It's pleasure. And I know you're, you're wondering about this, but just come on, stay with me. It's pleasure. This is the pitch. Well pleased, the commentator says, when we don't match that pitch, then a lot of things are going wrong. Now, I know what the protest is. Oh, come on, Pastor Mark. My, my child doesn't measure up to the virtue of Jesus. I understand that. In fact, the fact of the matter is, none of us measure up either. Think, think of our Heavenly Father and the way that He daily throws us circumstantial kisses. I mean, y'all are in San Diego. You're not in Michigan. Every day I woke up to the blue sky again, about up to mid-70s today. I mean, you are sun-kissed, Walter. In fact, Walter and I were talking out here. We were talking in the shed. I said, Walter, let me stand in the sun. You get that every day. You don't deserve that. But you get kisses from your heavenly Father. The heavenly Father throws us whispers of scriptural encouragement every day. You just open your Bible. Look how he whispers these sweet things to you. Then on the last day, your heavenly Father is going to crown you with, well done, good and faithful servant. And you deserve that. But look at the tender tone and the pitch of his fatherly relationship, how gracious it is with you. Sure, sure, I, I get that. You're looking at me back there, Robert. You're a Scotsman. You know how to raise children. Fathers must reprimand. Fathers must rebuke. Fathers must discipline. Hebrews 12, 8 says, without discipline, you would become illegitimate children and not sons. But we need to resist our tendency to be excessive fault finders. And again, I admit that that was me. I had the hawkeye for the bad and the bat's eye for the good in my children. In training our children to strive for excellence, we can become abrasive, can't we? We fathers can become white-glove reprimanding drill sergeants, hypercritically evaluating. Ah, she, she speaks with a bit of a lisp. Ah, he, he can't yet tie his shoes so that they stay. Ah, look at him, his hair, it's all wrong. He, he slept too long. He, he mowed the grass in the wrong configuration. There is a right configuration. With, trust me, at my house. <laughs> there is a, and my, 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 my firstborn son says, really, Dad? He mumbles instead of speaking clearly. He, he bought jeans with a wear mark already on them. He talks with his mouth full. He puts way too much syrup on his waffles. His sense of humor isn't nearly as witty as the neighbor boys. You see, like Dr. Dobson's dad, fathers can be constantly badgering and nitpicking. And, and that's why the scriptures say, say in Ephesians 6:4, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Or, again, repetition is important, like I said earlier about, about our wives. So too about us as dads. Colossians 3.21, fathers, don't exasperate your children. 
that they might lose heart. Because a sour tone that's provoking and exasperating is relationship corrosion. And we can usually hear it better in others than we can hear it in ourselves. I can remember as a younger father hearing that, that sourness in a pastor friend of mine. It was in the way that he talked with his son. The two of them would verbally spar, and I heard little sweetness in those conversations, and I heard a lot of bitter. And the dad seemed to interpret, to me anyway, almost everything his son did and said from just the darkest angle. His, his tone wasn't pleasurable. His tone was adversarial. And then over the years, the relationship seemingly never got out of that rut, and the rest is a really sour history because that son went off to the far country. And I know that I myself have been rutted into that tone too, and typically it's my helping wife who has thrown me a rope of rebuke and pulled me out of that rut and got me back on a healthy course again. Sam Crabtree has written a book on encouragement and affirmation. It's a really good book. And he tells of lecturing at a seminar at a campus crusade staff gathering on the benefits of building up others by praise and affirmation. And during the second session, one man's chair was conspicuously empty. He was there the first hour, but he wasn't there the second hour. And later, the man caught up with Sam and explained why he was absent. Here's what the guy said. He says, hey, I'm sorry I missed your next session, but after you talked about praising and affirming, I went to the phone. I got a 14-year-old son who hasn't spoken to me for about two years. We used to fight about almost everything, and over time, the fight dissolved into a long, silent, uneasy truce. So in the first hour, after being conviction by this teaching on affirmation, I called him up, and I was resolute that I wasn't going to criticize him. I wasn't going to correct him in any way in the phone conversation. I was going to praise him because I do. I do see things in him that are commendable. Well, this son who hasn't said boo to me in two years talked with me for 45 minutes. And I wasn't going to shut that down. And so I missed the whole session. Because the fact of the matter is encouragement, it's adrenaline. It's, it's eye-brightening to our children. Well-timed doses of it spur children on to maturity by putting away childish things and pursuing manhood or womanhood. That, that, that. And isn't that just what we want? We want them to dare great things. We want them to reach toward excellence. And so when your son spontaneously decides to wash the van... And then after he does it, you spy a, a dirt stripe missed on the driver's side door panel. It's probably not time to critically nitpick about the streak blemish, but instead you should resoundingly applaud the wash effort because we want them to daringly reach, don't we? And when they do reach, we want them to be affirmed by it. We want them to push themselves Common sense teaches us that if we slap their hand every time they attempt, they'll be gun-shy even to try. I can remember back in my mid-teens when I worked in the golf 
pro shop at an elite golf country club, and Don was the assistant pro. Don was this blonde mountain of a man, six foot five. He had an intimidating voice, and he could hit the ball a mile. And I found it really tough, to be honest with you, working for Don when Don, the assistant pro, was supervising the pro shop workers, because Don drove us by withering criticism. He'd bark out, hey, hey, who strapped McInerney's clubs on the passenger side of the golf cart? Everybody knows Mac wants to drive. Or else Don would say, hey, why are there still grass stains on Gillette's pitching wedge? Or who forgot to write down Hartman's bucket of range balls? Or maybe it's taken you way too long to find and pull down the player's bags from the warehouse racks. Under Don's critical gaze, I was always just just tight and unconfident and slow-moving because I was always in fear of making a mistake that would cost me a verbal lashing. You know the kind of experience I'm talking about with Don? But in contrast, when Don would be off playing a golf tournament somewhere else or maybe just 18 holes of the member, Tom, who was the caddy master, Tom was in charge of the pro shop workers. And Tom didn't drive us by withering criticism. Tom drove us, in contrast, by encouragement. Hey, Tom would say, how'd you get all those carts bagged and parked so fast? And I like the way you lined them up along the sidewalk in formation. Kind of looks like uh, F-16 fighter planes ready to fly off on a mission. Or later, Tom would say, that was really slick, the way that you regripped Sheridan's five iron. Or possibly, Tom would say, I think you plucked clean all those balls from the driving range in near record time. You see, under Tom's attaboys, I was always loose and I was confident and I was creative and motivated to work by the anticipation of boosting praise for a job well done. It's a world of difference under Tom versus under Don. I can remember, even fast forward now about about 20, 30 years, while golfing in northern Michigan with my friend Bruce, Bruce paused before climbing out of his golf cart on about the 13th hole. He sent a brief text to his college-age daughter on a faraway campus. I said, what'd you text? He says, I just told her that I love her. He looked at me and says, it's kind of like drip irrigation. She just thrives on my daily spoonfuls of, of affirmation. Affirmation. We were talking about being an Anglophile which is people who like all things British or all things English. And I was reading about an Englishman who was really frustrated that his kids would sleep in too long. And instead of waking him up with grinding criticism, he decided that the one who woke up first, he would call them all day lark. Lark is the bird who gets up earliest and sings sweetly. Lark. And so the kids all wanted to get the lark label for the day. And that's the way that he got him out from between the sheets. Now, now I know, I know that children do many dumb things for hour, per hour. 
And, and, and so do I as a child of God. My heavenly Father is so kind to hourly hug me and kiss me in long-suffering patience. And once again, you just ponder, you Southern Californians. Yeah, I was listening to Albert Moeller just earlier this week, and he was talking about the, the deep freeze that has struck the states. And Moeller says, you realize there is this very narrow temperate zone where human beings can survive. It could be so arctic, refrigerated, cold that it would all freeze to death. Or it could be so torridly hot that we would all melt to death. But God has given us this wonderful temperate zone. He kisses us. He is kind and gracious and long-suffering to us every day. It's kind of like drip irrigation, isn't it? The way he gives us these kindnesses. So we should be daily giving to our children what we might perceive as undeserved kisses, but not be overly concerned that we're overdosing on graciousness as we create that harmonious tone in our relationship with them, dads. So, so that's fathering. Come on with me to mothering. Mothering. I think you mothers really have it tougher than we do as fathers. Supervising the children 24-7 can be like Chinese water torture as a test for you moms trying to be patient. Because there's all day so much to correct. And an excellent wife of Proverbs 31, task-oriented as she is, it, it says she rises early, she prepares food, making clothes, buys a field, right? And a, a woman carrying on a demanding daily to-do list does not easily suffer fools, right? And so it's also important that the crucial ingredient in a in a mother whose children will rise up and call her blessed will be that the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That's what it says in 3.26 or 31.26 of Proverbs. So I think it's important that mothers avoid the chronic fault-finding. Just like the proverbial woman, mothers themselves thrive on praise because she receives praise at the city gate from her husband. And so she also should feed praise to her children. So moms, seek out and hunt for things to praise. Splash them all throughout the day, not so much with frowns and scowls, because we talked about facial expressions yesterday, body language, didn't we? But more so, splash them with smiles and winks, and then at the end of a peculiarly good day, dunk the little guy with a commendable commendation like you've been a really good boy today and it makes mommy's heart sing when you act so wisely i know the lord jesus is pleased with you and kiss him on the forehead turn out the lights and leave him with a simple resolution to try his best tomorrow that's really healthy in dealing with the children now how about mothers in particular the chemistry with the sons Little boys are little men. As I told you about, men thrive on being recognized. We want to be recognized as being courageous and, and brave and valiant. Even Owen here. I know Owen's not a man yet, but he's a, he's a man cub. He's on his way. 
And eventually, it should be said about him, let the wife respect, let's see to it that she respects her husband. So, so he, he will thrive even as a man cub on a sense of respect. And it's emboldening for a son to hear notes and tones from the woman in his life, his mother, that communicate things like, hey, Owen, you're, you're my hero. Instead of, you're just such a wimp, Owen. Don't, don't do that to him. Even though he may act like that sometimes. Even think of King David. How David made sure to record and publish the names and the mighty deeds of his mighty men. We talked about that, 2 Samuel 23, yesterday. David knew that such recognition would inspire them to even greater feats of valor. In fact, David was even careful to heap commendation not only on the spectacular exploits of Benaiah, who went into a pit and slew a lion on a snowy day, but even talks about how he gave full remuneration to those who stayed back with the baggage. He even commended the minor things in the lives of his mighty men. Because in doing so, David lionized his men. All I'm saying is, Mom, lionize your Owen. Lionize your Liam, your young men. Mothers must lionize their sons by dignifying them with their respect. I know it sounds almost counterintuitive, but at least respect in the bud to be able to convey. Commend your sons for doing noble things like maybe getting the mail in a blizzard. Um, let me strike that out for <laughs> San Diego. I even have shoveling heavy or deep snow in a hundred yard driveway. That's our driveway. Or emptying the mouse trap. That'll work in San Diego, won't it? Or walking home into the teeth of a frigid wind, maybe not. How about this one? Uh, our Nathan. Uh, hot summer afternoon. There was a there was literally a dead skunk in the middle of the road. And I had run by it early in the morning and I thought, the This is for Nathan. This is the test for Nathan. (laughs) Nathan, when you go out there, take a shovel. I want you to dig a hole over here with the shovel. And I want you to then take the skunk on your shovel and drag the dead skunk. Yes, and it was stinking to high heaven. And drag it over and fill in. So so I watched from the house. And we have a 100-yard drive. It's 100 yards away. And I watched as he was... And Nathan, when he grabbed the skunk on the shovel, the stench was so intense, he vomited in the ditch. So what's Nate going to do? Going to quit and come back? No, he went back, and he held his nose. He put his shirt over his nose, and he put it. When he came back, I just deluged him with praise because he was the man out there. Not in battling that lion in a pit, but that dead skunk in the middle of the road. So, so cloak your son. You could imagine what if Owen had done that and you made a fuss about him, Mom. You're the woman in his life. Cloak your son with a big jacket of respect in his childhood, and I think he'll seek to grow into it in his manhood. Te- teach him how to deserve and receive and handle respect. And Mom, beware of lavishing praise apart from genuine accomplishment, because Owen's just going to say. Uh, that's mom. She always says, no matter what I do, she always tells me what a great job I've done. Be, be selective. Be 
wise. Don't let them learn to disregard you as patronizing. Make it count. Make it count. So that's moms dealing with sons. So how about moms dealing with daughters? I think daughters require special treatment from, from what I can tell. I, Robert, at your instigation, Robert and I really, I think, met on a soccer field in New Jersey, and he schooled me on what it means to be a man on the soccer field. Well, I've coached, believe it or not, Robert, I've coached probably, I've coached dozens of my kids' soccer teams, my sons mainly, and then finally our daughter came along and Diane said, why don't you coach one of Abby's soccer teams? And I thought it would be the same. It ain't the same at all. (laughs) Because what I found is that with a boy, the ratio is kind of like four words of encouragement to one word of you knucklehead. And boys do pretty well at a four or one to ratio. But it's more, the girls are more like eight to one. Eight at a girls to one, not so good, honey, not so good. Otherwise, you crush them. They're different creatures. These wonderful ladies are wonderfully different than man cubs. Nancy Wilson speaks on this from maternal experience. Listen to what she says. The first things mothers must remember in raising young women is to be kind. A critical spirit is a destructive thing, and mothers must not be too hard on their girls. Mothers are naturally prone to be easier on the guys, but this shouldn't be. Mothers must not attribute motives to their daughters. I know, ladies, you say it takes one to know one, and and I've seen this with my own wife and my own daughter, but they must not do that. They shouldn't take offense or lose patience. They shouldn't take things personally as they're raising their daughters. Rather, they should put on tender mercies. Daughters primarily need love and security. And this is why a critical spirit can be so destructive with girls. Remember, we want our children to have fat, prospering souls. So criticism and impatience destroy instead of build up. Daughters need to feel important to Feel loved and accepted and needed and wanted and appreciated. So mothers must be diligent to praise their daughters. And moms, again, 24-7, your responsibility is epic. Sam Crabtree tells the story of of his 11-year-old daughter. He and his wife just, just felt like they were losing her. Like almost overnight, she thought her parents' brains were sucked empty of everything valuable to say. And then there was this silence and alienation momentum that was bad. And it forecasted an even worse teenage era. So Sam began to carefully study his daughter and try to, try to find things in her life that he could commend and he could praise. So Sam says this, I entered into her room one day and I noticed that she had arranged the items on top of her dresser in such a way that the taller things were in the back row and and the shorter things were staircased toward the front so you could see everything. And I exclaimed, I I like what you've done here. I see that you're methodical. This this makes sense. Very orderly, very systematized. I, I see the character of God in this. You know that I, 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 I walked out, ignoring the rest of the tsunami in her room. Only a few minutes later, I happened to walk past the kitchen when she was hugging her mom. I made affirming her my responsibility. I kept the 
the barrage of affirmation. And in a matter of a few days, we had our daughter back. I mean, that, th- this, this chemistry of encouragement is like adrenaline. And words, the tongue, can bring life or death. He says that the channels of communication are still sweet with his daughter, bringing this emphasis on encouraging, encouraging. It's like adrenaline. So we've addressed fathering. We've addressed mothering. Now, before we go home, let's just address a little bit grandparenting. Grandparenting. Anyone here know George McDiarmid? Yeah, Walter. George McDiarmid. He's a, he's a pastor who's a football coach personality kind of a man. He's gifted. He pastors in upstate New York, Boston Lake. Uh, I've gotten to know George over the years. I highly respect him. He is a model father. He's got one son, Greg, who really speaks well with his life for his dad. And Greg benefited wonderfully from his dad's coach-like spurring him on to do more and more excellent things to reach higher and higher levels of manhood. In fact, Greg, who played defensive free safety for his high school football team, Greg tells of the night that he didn't play so well in high school in this big conference rivalry game. And Greg recounted to me, he said, afterward, Dad just read me the riot act, and he reminded me of a third quarter play when the opposing tailback just slipped right by me for a touchdown, and Dad scolded and said, man, Greg, at least you could have shaken the man's hand when he blew by you. George was direct. He wanted his boy to be good. Well, years later, Greg moved down to Louisville, Kentucky, church pastored by Jim Sevastio, that's where Kurt and I originally met. And uh, now, as Greg moved down to Louisville, Greg had his own son named Ian. And when Ian was about three years old, Grandpa McDearman visited Kentucky for a week. And every day while he was there for that week, he took Ian for a ride to a nearby ice cream shop for a cone. Just, just the two of them. And at week's end, Greg, in disbelief, kind of teased Dad. He said, man, Dad, this is unbelievable. I could count on one hand the times you took me out for ice cream all the years of my childhood. And here you've been with Ian for a single week, and you beat that out. And George, calculatingly and perceptively, replied back, that's because, Greg... I'm not Ian's father, I'm Ian's grandfather. And there's a difference, Walter. There's a real difference between father and grandfather. See, what George meant was that the role of grandparent greatly differs from the role of parent. Parents are peculiarly assigned by God to be the important chief heavies, the discipliners the punishers, the correctors, the rebukers in the lives of their children. I think Scripture bears that out. So, Owen, Liam, you think your dad's tough on you and therefore he's going against what Pastor Mark is saying? Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh, don't you go home with that. Because Proverbs 13, 24, it says, He who spares the rod hates his son. His son 
Now see his grandson, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Or think of this one, Liam, Proverbs 29, 17. Correct your son, he'll give you rest. He will give delight to your soul. So your dad should be on your case at times because he is appointed as the heavy in your life. Or Proverbs 19, 18. Chasten your son while there's hope. Don't set your heart on his destruction. Even the New Testament, it also says in Hebrews 12, 7 and following, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So fathers are to be the heavies, the discipliners in the lives of their children. Grandfathers? Not so much. That's what George was driving at. Grandfathers are not to be the heaviest. Grandparents aren't to be. I think nature and Scripture teach us that grandparents are, are more assigned to be gracious and blessing benefactors than stern, disciplining rebukers. You say, where do you get that from, Pastor Mark? Well, just, just think with me. Think, think of... Genesis 48, 8, when Jacob blesses those two boys who were born down in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, the offspring of Joseph. Look at the, look at the, the tone and the pitch of grandfathering. Look, it says, Then Jacob saw Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father Jacob, these are my sons whom God gave me in this place. And Jacob said, bring them to me and I will bless them. I will bless them. I think that's kind of the keynote of grandparenting. Blessers. Or think of how Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. You, you, you leave it, you bless your grandchildren. I think this is an important concept because as we age, and I can speak from experience here, as we age, we can instinctively become chronically cranky. You will find this when you begin to age, Robert, and when you begin to age, Kurt, or Steve. Probably not yet for you guys, but we can become chronically cranky as we age, and we can be constantly correcting critics, both of our grandchildren and also they're not so measuring up in our eyes parents, right? Have you ever had that happen? You get a child and then your parents are trying to dictate to you how you should raise your own child? I, we, we, I avoid this. You see, we as grandparents can try to take up the rod of authority into our own hands. Now, Okay, I understand that this is a broken generation and there are single mothers and sometimes grandparents are called on to take on the role of 24-7 overseers and, and that's a different story. But I'm talking generally speaking when we have limited contact with our grandchildren, we shouldn't try to be the heavies because I've seen the tragic fallout of abrasively confronting grandparents 
burning bridges forever with their not-flying-right grandchildren, in their eyes anyway. So instead of habitually serving up refreshing talk with an ice cream cone, they try frequently to force down bitter asparagus with a scolding reprimand. All I'm saying is, don't do it. Don't do it. The, the rule of thumb should be, yeah, we can give him asparagus at times, but that is more urgent and rare in occasion, not constant. M- my wife, Grammy, she's, that's her name. She, she is our eight grandchildren's Grammy. She's a great example to me as I transition from father to grandfather. I still remember back our, our first grandson, Richard, he was three years old, he was spending a day at our house, and he was just inconsolably crying for no reason at all in my sight. And my instinct was to bark out, as I did as a father, hey, hey, we don't do that here, Richard. But Diane, in flesh, the Christ-like trait of a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not snuff out from Matthew 12, and she got down on her knees and eye to eye with Richard, and she says, Richard, talk to Grammy. Richard, what's the matter? You can tell me. And it turns out he was really hungry. And after just a cup of yogurt, he was transformed from an emotional wreck into this adorable delight. See, see this Grammys have this kind of blessing perspective. And then during one extended family dinner on a Sunday afternoon, Richard again was in a less than stellar and cooperative mood. And our son Austin, Austin is Richard's dad. And Austin calmly snatched up Austin, conducted him to a parental discipline session in a remote bedroom in our house, and brought Richard back. And the result was another wonderful transformation of Richard. Then on Monday morning, Diane and I were reminiscing, and, and Diane said, Man, Austin did a great job at the table with Richard yesterday, didn't he? he? He did everything right. So I immediately pulled out my phone and I texted Austin. I said, Mom said, you were the man yesterday in wisely handling Richard. And, and this was, again, adrenaline to Austin. Maybe things that Austin does as a parent I don't think are ideal, but to find those occasions when I can encourage him and commend him, I think that's healthy grandparenting. And I, I'm even reminded of, of Austin's comments as the extended family sat in a full room reminiscing together the afterglow of my dad's funeral back in 2001. I know I have a lot of things about my dad, don't I? But my dad was a wonderful man. I told Kurt in the way, he, he'd, he'd have a nickname for his sons. And he, my nickname was Superstar. I wasn't a superstar. But he called me superstars. I thought I was. And Dad had such an impact in my life. Well, anyway, I remember after Dad's funeral, we were all reminiscing kind of afterglow, talking in a big circle about Dad. In a special way, my dad had taken a peculiar interest in Austin. See, Austin was arguably the slowest of my dad's many grandsons. Austin was born with spina bifida. He came out of the womb, and in fact, even in the womb, they said, Mr. Chansky, he's got spina bifida. We have options. They were suggesting abortion. No, no way. And Austin came out of the womb. We didn't know if he'd ever get out of a wheelchair. Didn't know if he'd ever 
walk, let alone run. And I remember Austin could, could walk, and he wasn't very fast, though, not like his uh, swift-footed brothers. But my dad would take him out. My dad would take Austin off to a ball game, just he and Austin. Take Austin to the golf course, just he and Austin. Yeah, he'd go for ice cream, just him and Austin. He and Austin had something real special going. Austin eventually uh, got a black belt in taekwondo. Wonderful grace and mercy. Three children. My other sons, my, the, other, the other sons, the best they can do is one or two children. Austin has three. I say, gentlemen, this is a competition. <laughs> and Austin is way ahead. Well, anyway, back, back to Austin. There we were in that circle, and people were talking about grandpa who did this, and papa who did this, and dad who did this. And Austin, at the end, just said this. The thing about papa, Austin said, was... He was always there. He just nailed it. The dead silence. That was the last. That was the last word. Because all the grandkids knew that Papa was always there for them, blessing with that blessing of being a grandpa. So, with those encouraging memories forever treasured away, my dad had left a wealthy inheritance to his child's child, as Papa Chansky was adrenaline to Austin and to his other grandkids. Now, I will admit that Austin's maternal grandma, Becker, she understands this concept too, and she's a German lady, went through World War II, and she's got some rough edges, and she still has a way of serving up sharp and tart rhubarb, but she always engorges it in sweet pie a la mode, and she sometimes quite directly and critically tells her grandchildren what she thinks, but she does it in kind of a crafty way, serving it up with Dairy Queen-like sweetness. So, yep, yep, ice cream brings more invigorating health than asparagus. And I think George McDiarmid and other wise grandparents know that. So we've talked about encouragement in the family. It is like adrenaline for husbanding, for wifing, for fathering, for mothering, for grandparenting. May it be that this would bring a healthy pulse to our marriages and to our families. And I get tomorrow to talk to you about the gospel as the ultimate encouragement. And again, before you go home, just think of this. This is a trustworthy saying worthy of great acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief.